reputation is what represents you when you are not in the room. Your reputation has its own chair at the table when you are not physically there. And every opportunity you have to interact with someone at your company is an opportunity to build your reputation and you should not take that lightly. This is Taking the Lead, a podcast for B2B tech professionals, leaders, and executives who want to learn from female icons in the tech industry. In each episode, host Christina Brady interviews women who are driving revenue for some of the most respected tech companies in the world. Are you ready to get inspired? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady. I am the Chief Strategy Officer of Sales Assembly. Our company is Scale as a Service for B2B tech companies. We partner with companies and work with every employee of the go-to-market org to train, certify, advise, and do anything else that you need to get your company where it has to go quickly, fast, and focused. I am so excited today to be meeting with Carly Lehner. Carly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christina, for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Same. So I noticed on your LinkedIn that you're voted one to watch in 2022 sales enablement. One, congratulations. That's mad cool. And two, makes me even more curious to just hear about your professional journey and what got you where you are. So one, you are one to watch in sales enablement. I, I, I can't stop obsessing over that. That's so cool. And then two, you are, <laughs> let's watch you. You are the senior director of RevOps and enablement at Andela. Tell us all about you. Well, yeah, first of all, thank you. That was like one of the coolest moments of my career so far when sales enablement collective reached out to me and was like, hey, like you're what you're on our one to watch list. Like getting on a list, it was like such a cool moment for me. So I fangirl over over that myself. So, <laughs> but yeah, yes. so I, yes. I currently, I'm the senior director of revenue operations and enablement at a company called Andela. A lot of the listeners probably have never heard of Andela. So we believe that brilliance is evenly distributed throughout the world, but opportunities are not. So our mission is to connect brilliance with opportunity, irrespective of race, gender, and geography. So. I absolutely love waking up and coming to work every day and helping someone who is based in Lagos, Nigeria, or in Brazil, or someone who's based in Poland, find a job with a big tech company that they wouldn't have had access to if it wasn't for Andela. And so to me, it's just like such a cool place to work because I really do think we're like helping the like we're doing good in the world, which is just like such a cool thing. So yeah, so I work at Indela. I've been here for a year and a half. I initially joined to lead the revenue enablement team. And after about 10 months, there were some changes and leadership changes and the head of RevOps decided to do something else within the business. And I said, Hey, like, I'll take over RevOps as well. Like, I think it makes a lot of sense to have ops and enablement work really closely together. So, and I always kind of knew for my career, like this would need to be a step that I would make if I wanted to get to like a VP level one day. So I said to my new boss, I have no idea what I'm doing. I know this is something that I really should learn. If you are willing to be patient with me, I would love the opportunity to do this. And he said, absolutely. So now it's been about 
you know, like I think three quarters now, like almost a year, it'll be a year in October where I now lead both RevOps and enablement. I have an enablement background, so I'm super comfortable in that area. I started off in sales and immediately said to myself, I just don't think I want to sell, but I love the arena of sales is kind of how I describe it. So I still wanted to be involved somehow. And so enablement turned out to be like a really great spot for that. And now I'm I'm learning RevOps. So yeah, that's a little bit about my career so far. It's fascinating. One, the value or mission statement for your company gave me chills in a great way. I just think to be able to do really meaningful work like that, you know, I, I talk about it a lot. We spend so much time, so many moments of our lives while we are at work and to be able to do something that is truly meaningful and make such a ripple impact, I think is really, really special. So I just, I loved hearing about what your company does. I feel like I could do this entire episode being like, wait, so how do you do that and what? But I will save that for all yeah. the people who are going to want to talk to you after this. Yeah, to be like, give how us do a you call. Do it? <laughs> yeah, Andela is like a really Love great, it. great company. So yeah. Oh, well, I'm going to give you a call. I'm going I'm to call you after this. <laughs> Second part of it is both of the, the fields that you've found yourself working in, I would say that most folks in our industry would say that they're still relatively new. So the idea of sales operations, I think, has been around for a while, at least as long yeah. as I've been in the game, which again, not that long, like we're talking 15, 16 years, which in the scope of the professional world, that's still relatively recent. Mm -hmm. But even this idea of revenue operations, I think, is even newer. I didn't start hearing that term, albeit for the last like three or four years. So you being on sort of both of those roles, what do you think are some of the nuanced differences and what kind of makes up revenue operations versus sort of the traditional precursor roles that led to it? Yeah. So, and again, I'm a newbie in this space, in the RevOps space, yeah, but yeah, when right. I... When I kind of look at, because sales enablement has gone through that same evolution. It was sales enablement, now it's revenue yes. enablement. Yep. So when I think of the change between sales to revenue, money touches all parts of the business, right? When a client, a customer pays you money as a business, sales is not the only one involved. And so I see revenue enablement and operations being involved in every part of the process where revenue or money is kind of flowing through the business. And so that starts with trying to get money to come to the business, like trying to get clients and that's top of funnel, very traditional sales. But then there's account management. How do we keep that money in our business? And then there's actually the process of how do we bill clients? How do we receive money from them? And our revenue operations team works closely with other teams, but Salesforce is like the way we kind of do all of that. Like we use configure price quote from Salesforce. So all of our billing is done out of Salesforce. And so that's really like where the true revenue operations comes in. I think, and again, I didn't work in true sales operations, but like there's a lot of companies that have like a deal desk or pre-sales yes. support or like sales engineering. And like, I think that's maybe what people think of as sales operations. And we don't really do a lot of that in it at Andela. We truly more on the like, how does the the whole revenue function within Andela? And a lot of it is facilitated through Salesforce. So that's kind of how I define it, at least. I mean, that's, it's broad, but it's when you lay out the different facets of the role and how important it is, all of those 
levers and mechanisms were always there. I just don't think yeah. that we were viewing it as holistically and large. You know, it was, it was like we were tackling little bits of the beast at a time versus we should look at this holistically and, you know, as one big functioning machine versus these tiny little motors. And so you're three quarters in, which I think half people would say that's so long in tech, like you're a veteran <laughs> and others are like, I'm still learning this. So one thing I know that most enablement folks you yourself as well are passionate about is onboarding and what does that look like? So starting mm -hmm. with your own experience, going from enablement into leading revenue operations, how have you been preparing to take that on? Feels yeah, like a trick so question because I want to be like, you're going to say none. <laughs> I definitely didn't have a formal onboarding for myself, right? But what I've definitely been trying to do is go like external a bit and network with people trying to understand like what RevOps is all about. I'm also not afraid to be vulnerable with my team, the RevOps team that's in place who are like experts in RevOps and be like, help me learn the business. Like help me learn what you guys think about because I more came from it as a like a from a, like a manager leader perspective. And like, I know where the business is going. I can work with them to make sure that we can execute, but they can also teach me things. So I'm definitely not above, like, just because I'm your manager or your leader doesn't mean I can't learn from you. So I definitely defer to my team a lot and learn a lot from them. But I think different communities are really important for people like myself to learn new things. And you know, I have a mentor who's external to the business and I go to her, but I need like help with things. I'm like, am I crazy? Like, this doesn't seem like this should be that complicated. Am I overthinking it? So I think having like different avenues to learn, I think is really important. And that's how I've essentially like onboarded myself into this role. <laughs> so <laughs> onboarded myself. Yeah, um, I think you're totally right. Like there's much more of an opportunity for third party content, thought leadership, mentorship. I think with everybody all the time, especially when you're starting a new role, you don't always feel like you know what questions to ask and being able to go to somebody outside of the four, I guess, the four in air quotes walls of your company yeah. to get that information is big. And I think, you know, maybe potentially sadly, I think it's more to be expected that some of the non-producer roles don't really have as comprehensive or formalized onboarding that feels like the normalcy but it shouldn't yeah. be. But I would even go so far as to say that in a lot of instances, there is misses when it comes to onboarding, even some of the producer roles. So I would say in your experience, to kick us off around the conversation of just new hire onboarding in general, because it is such a deep well, what do you think are some of the big gaps that currently exist with onboarding that are kind of hindering companies and people from their true growth potential? I think a lot of it has to do with just how adults learn, right? So a lot of times companies will have these boot camps and a lot of amazing companies have really successful boot camps. But the challenge that I see with a boot camp approach, and like I kind of see this even with how we do onboarding is you're in a learning environment for two weeks, you, you learn a bunch of stuff, and then we ask you to go do it. And you don't retain information that well, like even the, the even if you are super focused, taking really thorough notes, you are going to forget some of the information you learn in a boot camp. And so, when it's time to go sell, or it's time to like 
process your first, like start your new opportunity in Salesforce, like you are going to forget. And so it's almost like we're you're learning in a vacuum and we need to figure out a way to learn like truly on the job really well. But that's really hard to do. That's really hard to replicate, especially like for us, we're a remote company. So how can I replicate like a sales scenario, like a new business scenario for like a new AE that allows them to be actually doing the job in a safe environment where they're not actually like messing up a real opportunity, right? Like they need to have the freedom to fail. But so that's really hard to do. Like I personally haven't cracked that code yet. We're doing like certifications and things like that where we really leverage Gong. We're a Gong customer. So we like listen to calls and try and get them to be as close to real life as we can get them and then do role plays and things like that. But even like, I think the Salesforce, like operational side of a salesperson's job is really hard to replicate without them actually running a deal. And I think to me, like that's, that tends to be where the challenges are. They're like, okay, cool. I got a cus like I got a prospect, but like, now what do I do in the systems? And like, I know I learned this a month ago, but I forgot everything because that's just how adult learning you know, that's just how it is. So to me, I think that's always the the conundrum I kind of play in my head is like, how do we replicate this in a, as most real way as possible? It's such a great point. You're reminding me of when I had my son. And I think any mother when they have their first kid, you know, you're if you're me, you're in the hospital, and you're feeling like you have a lot of support, you're super emotional, you don't know what you're doing. Baby's crying, what do I do? And then at the very end of this very supportive hospital-like environment, I was like, so you're just going to let me take this baby <laughs> and leave and just go, I'm just going to take, I'm going to take it from here is what you're saying. Yeah. I'm going to pass it. I'm going to take it from here. And that's, and that's what we're going to do. And that's like, it's kind of what it feels like, right? Where it's like two weeks of just very, very immersive learning the content and the value and HR stuff and listening to calls. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I feel like a student again, right? I got a pencil on my ear. And then it's like, all right, you got it from here. I'm like, do I? Like, do wait, I have it what? from here? I, I don't. Are you sure? You're gonna let me. So you're gonna let me just go call a customer just right now. I'm gonna go sell this product. Brings me to my next question, which is, how have you structured onboarding in a virtual environment? Yeah, that's. that's a, a I know, and that's question. kind of a hard. That's a hard ball. It's a hard ball. But like, how are you doing it? So we have to recognize that people learn in different ways, like, right, there's different learning styles. Some people like to read things, some people like to listen to things, some people like to talk it out. And so we try and bring a blend of all of those things to our onboarding programs. Our programs are two weeks long, but they're hybrid. So that we'll have live sessions with a facilitator. And that allows people to ask questions and that sort of thing. But we also pair that with self guided learning. So we use Showpad as our enablement platform. And so we'll, I like to use the flipped classroom model, which is from Salman Khan. He started Khan Academy, which is like the coolest yeah. thing ever. But the idea is that you learn something first, and then you go to the classroom to discuss and like do your homework, basically in class with the guidance of a teacher. And so that's kind of the approach we've taken. If we're going to talk about our competitive landscape, 
you should learn the basics in like on a showpad course, right? That content never changes or it changes infrequently enough where you can make a video about it. And then you get together with the expert to discuss and ask questions because the expert's time is more valuable in that type of discussion than going through the same slide deck over and over and over again every couple of weeks or every month. And it's like, right. I, I don't need to define what the different competitive categories are. I could do that one time in a video and then have these really cool discussions with new hires as they start to process that information. So that's kind of the approach we've taken is learn something, come to class with a facilitator. And then we also have built out like structured activities that they need to do during their two weeks, whether that's like, listen to this specific gong call and write down what you learned about this part of the process, right? Because if you just say, listen to gong calls, they don't know what they're looking for. So you have to be super prescriptive totally. about it, right? So that's kind of in a nutshell, how we have approached onboarding. And then in the weeks three and four is when they're preparing for a certification. So they're not actually like in classroom sessions or even like on Showpad doing trainings, but they're, you know, doing role plays with their peers, like maybe going on calls and shadowing and, and that sort of thing, and then getting certified in a discovery call to then go sell. So to me, that's really worked for us because people can learn at their own pace, but still have the opportunity to meet with their peers and have like a true cohort and then get that time to ask questions and things like that. The prescriptive nature of what you're talking about is big because mm -hmm. I've even seen some onboarding plans as of recent and it's, yeah, everyone comes and meets for a week in classroom and then in between classroom days, they're shadowing calls. And in my mind, I'm like, kind of what, like what you said with gong calls, we're a customer of gong too. They're absolutely incredible but if you're like go listen to some gong calls like the blind leading themselves you know you're yeah, like, okay, exactly. I don't know. so that even though like just shadow some calls but especially if they're live calls you can't always control the content or the quality of those calls and so i've even gone so far as to say that listening to a sales rep live on a call in the moment is great but we can't control live interactions and we can't derive what are the learning moments in real time if you're attending that call you just don't know how it's going to go so am i going to learn what i need to learn right now in my enabling of this role Maybe, maybe not, if it's jump on a call with somebody that they have on their calendar. And I would also imagine the framework that you laid out allows you to be role-specific much more, because I don't think companies nail role-specific onboarding either. Would you agree? Yeah, that's definitely, that's a hard one. And it takes a lot of investment to yeah. really nail role-specific. And we've even gotten to segment-specific. So like, we have SMB account executives, we have enterprise account executives. Their onboarding programs albeit structured very similarly, but the content of which they are learning is different. So once we kind of came up with the framework, it was easy for us to build the rest. But I mean, I have on the enablement team, a person who is dedicated to onboarding program management. He started in the end of September and this past quarter, he finally finished development of the last like onboarding program. So it was a full-time dedicated effort for a to person to build out everything. But it's funny, the live shadowing of a call is, is really interesting because it almost implies to the new hire that what this person says is going to be good and what you should be doing. 
But we all know that even like myself on calls, we say things we're like, that probably wasn't the right wording or probably shouldn't have yeah. shown my cards too early, right? So the new hire could potentially pick up on really bad habits, which is why leveraging a gong chorus, whatever you use to find the right examples and guide them saying, look at the Andela pitch in this call. What did you learn? What did you take away from it? What would you do differently? Then they kind of realize, okay, this is a good example of something that I need to take note of. And we kind of can fil help filter out the bad examples, but that also is a huge time investment to filter through everything and find those. But I think it's definitely worth the effort because our new hires have constantly given us really good feedback about how well prepared they feel after onboarding. And yes, there's always trial and error when you start doing things on your own, but it actually has, has really helped. Well, that's rare feedback. I mean, I would say at two of the larger companies that I've worked at that had what I would call a fairly comprehensive and resource-heavy onboarding, a lot of the feedback that I was hearing a lot was that people were not feeling prepared coming out of onboarding. And the nuance there is I've usually led growth teams, so growth quota CSMs, where they're coming out of a training that says this feels like it was really geared heavily toward new business reps, and there was nothing that was really speaking directly to our role. And so the role and segment-specific stuff that you're talking about, while it sounds like it's a really comprehensive build, it's so, so meaningful. Because, I mean, I laugh at the the talking about call shadowing, because I think there is time to flip this on its head, right? It's like, you have to learn how to get dressed before you know what you want to wear. So if I'm going on a call and I'm hearing somebody's style and the way that they overcome an objection or how they're going to handle a pricing discussion, I'm yeah. learning more about their style and I'm not prepared to derive, okay, what is the process I should be taking out of this? Because I don't know anything yet. I haven't, I haven't heard yeah. the framework. So your point is so sound around that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I love yeah, onboarding. It's big. It's like, I think it literally makes yeah. or breaks an employee's experience. And so if you get it right, it reaps oh. tons of benefits. So, yeah. And if you get it wrong, it kind of keeps hitting you. Like, far beyond the traditional onboarding time. I have heard people continue to have negative emotions around their onboarding experience years after they started at the company, even down yeah. to... Oh, when I was onboarded, we we had this, like we had no support, right? It's like it stays with them. And going one level further, there's individual contributor onboarding. The nut that I think so many people have not cracked is leadership onboarding. Like, how do you get a leader prepared to do that job? Do you feel like there needs to be a very specific onboarding path and curriculum for leaders at various levels versus only what we see focused on so often as ICs. Like actually companies I've worked for are companies that we advise through sales assembly. So many of them don't have dedicated leader onboarding. Like the leader starts and they're like, yeah, go. Right. It's like pushing, it would be like pushing me out the door, like literally right after having my child. Like you've got the baby, go. I'm like, what? Yeah. Alert on the job. It, it feels like yeah. that. Do you see that too? I totally see that. And I think the challenge that at least like a company the size of Andela faces is we hopefully don't have leaders turning over often enough to warrant building a separate program. But larger companies who maybe yeah. have, you know, frontline managers coming in and leaders coming in very consistently should absolutely build a separate program for them. 
one of the things that we just built was like a leadership development program is what we call it, but it's for frontline managers mm. who are getting promoted into that role. And we did this as a cohort at the start of the Love year. That. And like, and we'll probably have to, another cohort start probably at the beginning of next year as well. But we add people to it as time goes on and there's all the recordings and things like that. But that's not a true like onboarding program of like, this is how you like run a one-on-one or like, this is what you should look at in your one-on-ones for your people. And here's the reporting, the reports you should look at. We do some of that, but it's definitely not in a formalized way when they join the organization. And that that's definitely something that I would like to see us improve. But I think there's there's probably very few companies that do that really well. And I would love to learn from them if they're out there. <laughs> to, I mean, you and me both. You and me both. We have to find one of them because you're also making me think that there's also a pretty big difference between if you're hiring, call it a net new backfill, whatever, net new backfill yep. leader from outside of the organization and bringing them in, what does that onboarding for that individual look like versus if you're promoting somebody up into a leadership role, what does that onboarding look like? I tend to think that those would also have to be pretty different. Like there'd be some some things that are very, very similar, mm-hmm. but it gets more nuanced the more that I think about it. So do you feel also like maybe the devil's in the details a little bit when it comes to onboarding overall and that there's a point where you can go too far and get too specific? Yeah, devil is definitely in the details. So you need someone who's detail oriented, (laughs) but you also need someone who is able to see the forest through the trees and be like, okay, where are we overcomplicating? Where could we just have, like, let's say a frontline manager net new comes in and they're overseeing account executives. They could probably go through account executive onboarding and then we could give their leader, like the director, like a coaching pack (laughs) of things that they use in meetings that they like kind of do on their own to facilitate the like, okay, you're a manager of people. This is what, how you kind of work with people based on the things you're already learning. This is how you as a manager actually use that information to manage or something like that. Like you don't maybe need to build a separate program. You just need to build maybe supplemental materials to go along the existing program. Like there's definitely ways to, to look at it, but I could definitely see companies like overthinking how to approach it totally like do we need to build a path for new managers to our organization who have never been managers versus new managers to our organization who have been managers before and then do we segment that by the years of experience or what industry they came from like i could just see somebody who is very very yeah yeah and you're like before you know it it's like we have 37 different learning paths for onboarding everyone's like what (laughs) like how do i identify and but Like I could see it going there, like, right, like people who are in this industry, their minds work that way where it's like, I want to, I want to lift up every rock. And sometimes myself included, we go too far. Like we go too far. We go, you know, there's enough of the same flavor here that uh, we could make good ice cream. So that all being said, the other thing that I hear a lot of conversation around is what lines of business in an organization are actually involved in the onboarding of new employees? So like enablement is the first one that comes to mind, right? Like if you have an enablement team, enablement is very, very front and center in developing onboarding and facilitating it. So is obviously the hiring managers. But what other departments do you feel like you're working with pretty regularly, or at least when you were in enablement to make sure that that goes smoothly? Who are your partners in onboarding? So the two that come to mind are like the people or the HR team. 
and your IT team. Because we obviously have to know that a new hire is starting. So there's the whole like notification yeah. process of from recruiting, usually it's on the people team, but from recruiting, hey, this offer is going out. Here's when they're starting. Here's their manager, what team they're on, where they are located physically. Just getting that whole like notification process figured out took a lot of work because enablement has to know if someone's starting, right? We have to start planning. And we have so many tools that we use that we need to start assigning their licenses to them so that when they come to onboarding, we don't have access issues. We don't spend the first 15 minutes of a 30 minute meeting on how to use LinkedIn sales navigator for them to be like, oh, I don't have access to this. Let me get you access, right? So you have to work with IT to be like, hey, can you set up their Andela email address a week before they start? They used to do it the day they started. But then like, you know, it takes us how much time to set these things up. And so so you have to like work with IT to be like, hey, can we actually kick this off early because of the downstream implications of the downstream work we have once that email address is created. And then like the people team might have their own onboarding program. So we have that at Andela where the people team does their own like three hour onboarding where they go over like company vision and mission and all of that you know you have to do your like compliance training and all of that fun stuff so we have to really work closely with them to understand okay when do those sessions take place we need to build our calendar around it so it really is like yes enablement is the one developing the program but it really doesn't it's not successful if you aren't working with recruiting people and IT to make it all actually go smoothly. It's usually not like the end of the world if like, you know, you don't have access to things or whatever, but like you want to provide the best experience possible for onboarding. Like we talked about earlier, like literally makes or breaks your experience. So having everyone aligned on timelines and who does what I think is super important. And that that definitely goes outside of enablement. Oh my gosh. And when your employees come into the organization and it's very obvious that your different lines of business are working well together and project managing together and leaning on each other, I think it, I don't know that we will ever eliminate the silo issue that we have. Like, I feel like since I started in this century, everyone's like, everyone's in silos. Let's have a happy hour. And then the silos (laughs) persist. And so (laughs) I don't know that that will ever get better. But I think this idea of what departments really should be viewed as partnering is big. And along those same lines, when I think about enablement and RevOps, they seem like very, very natural partners. And in fact, I think a lot of times enablement is a part of the revenue operations function. How does it work at your company? Are you all in one? Yeah, so one we're place? in one. Like before I took over RevOps, we were two separate, under two separate leaders, all reporting to the CRO. So like Ooh. we all like kind of were on the same leadership team, right? But we yeah. we operated very separately. Like we didn't ever meet with each other. Like the leader and I would meet, but like our teams never interacted. Now having it under one person overseeing both, it's amazing the difference that has made. We've actually kind of aligned enablement managers and RevOps managers together. So I have someone who's kind of in charge of top of funnel-ish for enablement. And then we have someone who's top of funnel for RevOps and they partner together on everything. Same with bottom of funnel. In fact, my two bottom of funnel 
people are, it's like the best example I've ever seen of just teamwork. They, to me are like incredible. One of the enablement person understands what's going on in the field. Like how do we make this easier for them? Works with a RevOps person and they figure out technically how do we execute this in Salesforce or leveraging our existing stack. The enablement person helps advise that and then helps enable and train and do that sort of thing. So the two of them work together very well. And that has been a really good like case study for why enablement and operations really need to be working super closely together. Because if ops is going to change something in a system, like enablement needs to know about it. If enablement is sensing frustrations in the field, ops probably needs to know about it. So having these partnerships together has made a world of a difference. And I mean, I only was separate from ops for about 10 months, but I have one of the leaders on my team. She has been at Andela for three years and has seen tons of iterations of revenue operations. And she said, like, this is definitely the the closest that enablement and ops has been. So I think it works really well for us. Well, it's really neat that you also brought your perspective and then you were able to execute organizational change. And it sounds like you're starting to build out a playbook for internal partnerships at the line of business level, which is really neat. Like, is that a deliberate thing that you're doing or is this happening by accident? It's kind of, it is deliberate in the sense that I've always kind of thought about operational support, whether that's enablement or operations to like the business line, like to the function. And so as opposed to like specializing in like a concept, like, instructional design like that could be really confusing for someone in the business like who do i go to for this i'd rather than be like so and so is my point of contact on enablement and operations for all these things and then they can be true partners to the business and so it definitely is deliberate but it is helpful because there are other aspects of andela that i think could benefit from this type of working relationship and so i think maybe what potentially is next for me is to bring more into the remit of like who else can benefit from an operations enablement partnership within Andela. Still touching revenue. We're really only touching like a small part of revenue. There are other revenue streams in the business that could probably benefit from this. So that is kind of something that I'm like thinking about in the future. So. Well, now I, and I think everyone listening understands why you're getting accolades for your thought (laughs) leadership. This has been... (laughs) This has been an incredible time so far, and I just looked at the time and I can't believe it, but it is time for us to pivot into our rapid reveal section at the very end here. Rapid reveal is I have five questions meant to help the audience get to know you a little bit more on a personal level. You have 60 seconds or less to answer each one. Are you game for this? I'm so game for this. Okay. Number one, what did you want to be when you grew up? This probably won't be surprising now knowing what I do, but I wanted to be a teacher. My mom was a teacher. She's a fifth grade yep. teacher. So I always kind of thought like I would love to do that. And I always imagined myself like having a classroom and how I would set it up. Now I am kind of a teacher, but just two adults and I don't necessarily have a classroom that they come to. But so it's not super surprising to me that I'm doing what I'm doing now. 
It's a phenomenal crossover. Actually, one of my very best friends started out in education as a teacher. And based on the fact that we grossly underpay educators in this country, yeah, um, she wasn't able to make a living wage. And she said, I don't know where to go from here, but I'm passionate about what I do. I just can't make a living like this, which as a parent is terrifying to me. And I said, you should go into enablement in the tech field. Like you would be phenomenal. And she did. And she is. And she's incredible. Nice. And I think there's so many educators who find their way there because you you all are incredible project managers. You know how people learn. You understand the brain chemistry. It's such a good crossover. Yeah, I um, love that. Also, we should pay teachers more. This is I'm on my soapbox now. Plus one to Pay that. educators more. Yeah. All right. Number two, what's an irrational fear of yours? <laughs> spiders for one. Like spiders, sure. I just sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just, nope. that's just not a thing. Yeah, spiders. Spiders. It's fair. Someone should tell them how scary they look. I think they'd be mortified. All right, number three. Ooh, what is the best advice that you've ever received? Okay, so this is an easy one. One of our regional sales leaders at the first company I worked for always did like an advice session with the new hires, right? We are fresh college grads at this point. And the best piece of advice, and I still remember to this day, is he said, your reputation is what represents you when you are not in the room. Your reputation has its own chair at the table when you are not physically there. So when promotion discussions are coming up, you are not in the room, most likely. When people are talking about who should take this next role, you are not in the room, but your reputation is. And so... I have always taken that with me and every opportunity you have to interact with someone at your company is an opportunity to build your reputation and you should not take that lightly. Ooh, bam. That was, <laughs> this is why I love this. That was an incredible answer. Okay. Yeah. That's, I'm like, cerebral now. Like, yeah, you can tell why I love that one. It's like that. I'm going to take that with me. Ooh, it's a good one. That's not going anywhere. Take it in. It's in the Rolodex. We're going to keep it. All right. Number four, when is the last time you doubted yourself? Yesterday. <laughs> yeah, like today, yeah, right now, like, during this conversation. Like this is a daily <laughs> struggle, I think. And I don't know if this is a female thing. You know, like, I don't think I, Could I don't be. talk to a lot of male colleagues who are like, oh, yeah, I really doubt myself. But I doubt myself all the time. I'm like, am I doing am I the right person for this? Or like, am I doing this right? Or is, is my gut right here? I know I probably, I need to flip that and be like, I am doing the right thing. Like I need to probably lead with conviction more, but I also think it is healthy to kind of check yourself. That's it. I So when was the last time I doubted myself? Yesterday or this morning, but like Yesterday. answer it all the time. Right, yeah. right now. Yeah. I would go so far as to say I almost don't trust people who don't question enough. And I think it's that, right? Like, we look at it as doubt, but I actually think that people who have a learning mentality make the best leaders, and a learning mentality first has to come from the self-reflection of, did I do that the right way? Is there a better way to do it? Am I really actually good at this? Some self-doubt is self-cannibalizing, absolutely, yeah. when it's tearing yourself apart, but I think it's coming from such a good place. It's coming from a place of wanting to be the best that you can and being maniacally curious about that. So I think it's a good thing. We just sometimes have to let up on ourselves, give ourselves a little bit of grace. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. All right. 
Number five and the very last one. What is your favorite thing to do? So this is a simple one. One of my favorite things to do is wake up on a Saturday morning and my husband and I take our dog on a walk. We just moved to the countryside. So we left London and moved to the Cotswolds. And so one of my favorite things to do is just go on a country walk with our dog, walk to the farmer's market, get all of the goodness for the day and then come home and just like cook something. So like pretty simple life, but that's just like my favorite thing to do. Just like go on a dog walk. Our dog is like our world. Like we don't have kids. So the dog is our child. And uh, yeah, we just, we just absolutely love love that. So, well, that was, that was beautiful. And if I were to use (laughs) one word to kind of just describe your ability to talk about what you do and turn it into thought leadership and conversation and compartmentalize it has been really, really wonderful. And I imagine people are likely going to want to talk to you more about it after hearing this. So if I wanted to find you, where would I find you? How do I connect with you? Oh my gosh. Well, Christina, that was like the best compliment I could ever get. Like, thank you for that. That makes me like so happy. Um, But I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I try and be active on LinkedIn. I'm not as active as some people, but I try and have a presence on LinkedIn. So that's where you can find me. Wonderful. Well, this has been a wonderful and enlightening conversation for me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Good. And we will catch you all next time on Taking the Lead. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Taking the Lead. If you're looking for more inspiring stories from women leaders in B2B tech, then visit us at motionagency.io slash taking the lead.